Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you might grant your servant utterance, that you might allow me to, Lord, preach your word in such a way that is helpful to my brethren. I pray for soft and tender, teachable hearts, eager to hear so as to apply your word together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll open your Bibles to the book of Titus, to the book of Titus for the last time, at least for now. I don't know what it is about statistics that interests me so much. I don't know if any of you guys like looking up stats about various things. Uh, maybe uh, for me, it, it just sometimes indicates something to me about the state of our country, uh, some issue going on in our city or somewhere. And so recently I was looking at various statistics about different cities in America, and one of the stats that stood out to me were the top five busiest, most action-packed cities in the U.S. Um, I don't know what your guess would be as to what are the busiest cities in America. Uh, there was uh, Nashville, Tennessee in there, and New York, and San Diego, and San Francisco, and some others. But do you know where L.A. ranked as far as the busiest or most action-packed cities in America? Number two. Yep, after New York. L.A. was considered the second busiest city in America. And I uh, went on to talk about how L.A. is full of activity. And we know about that, don't we, as Angelinos, right? Uh, we feel the craziness every single day of our city. Uh, there's so much happening here. There's so much to do, places to go, people to see. And as I've that wasn't enough, right, for those of us who care about things that are important, Right On top of that, we all have responsibilities of family and marriage and children and jobs and education and church life. There's all kinds of different things to keep up with. And then on top of that, we live in a technologically consume, or technology-consumed society where the name of the game is, is speed and get things done as quickly as possible. You know, as soon as the, as the faster, more savvy gadget comes out, uh, we are told that our electronic device is lame and that it's no longer good enough and you've got to get the next faster, better gadget, right? Do you feel the pressure? I don't. I just, whatever, right? But our culture tells us that. You need the next fastest thing. I mean, now some people are even waiting for the newest iPhone to come out that actually makes breakfast for them and does laundry. Hey, don't laugh. That could happen, right? Crazier things have already transpired in the last decade or so, right? Amidst so much to do, it's so easy, isn't it, to lose sight of many, many things. And at the top of that list, beloved, would be the, the deliberate, careful application of God's Word. You see, in the midst of all that we have to do in our society, we forget to apply what we learn from God's Word, whether it's in our personal time with the Lord and His Word or the messages that we hear. We hear message after message after message. And as Americans, uh, Christians living in America, it's very easy for us to become hearers but not doers of the Word who apply God's truth by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God to our lives. And as you know, we're going to be going uh, uh, into a summer series in the book of Psalms uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, just in my own studies, it's already been a rich, rich time looking at some of the psalms that we're going to be looking at. But before that, before going into the psalms, I want us to, to stop this morning. 
and sort of pause and really spend some time reflecting on on some life-changing lessons that we've learned from the book of Titus this past year or so. You know, one of the key themes in the Bible, more um, implicit rather than explicit, is the, the whole theme of remembering, of remembering. I believe that part of the reason we have the Bible in written form, God's Word, is because we are forgetful people who need to be reminded daily of who God is and, how, and what God has done in Christ and how we need to live in the light of who God is and what He's done in the Gospel. And thus the importance of the written Word. Thus the importance over and over again in Scripture of, of reminders, of remembering things, and especially remembering who God is. You know, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. Because in that book, as, as Moses is preparing to pass the baton of leadership to, to Joshua, Moses launches into a series of sermons in Deuteronomy. And those sermons are really focused upon getting the people to remember who God is, to remember what He has done in delivering them from the hands of the Egyptians, and so that they would, as they remember those things and remember the character of God and His mercy and His grace shown toward them, they would walk in obedience to the Word of God, to His law. That they would glorify God, that they might receive blessing as they obey His Word. They needed to be reminded of that as they were preparing to enter the land. And in the New Testament, we have various reminders. One of them is in Second Peter chapter 1, and verse 12. Listen to what Peter writes to believers being persecuted in his day. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. That is to arouse you or to awaken you by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is eminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter says, I'm writing these things to you. You know these things. They pertain to the gospel and the way that they need to be living in the light of the gospel. But he says, I'm reminding you. That is part of my ministry to you as an apostle and obviously as as a fellow elder writing to these believers he needed to remind them of the of the truth because we are forgetful people right and they were as well and my heart echoes beloved the heart of peter this morning in the sense that i want us this morning to sort of in a topical way overarching kind of way as we look at the book of titus and as we look back at some of the the themes that we've seen in Titus, I want us to, to remember some of the lessons that we've learned so as to apply them to our lives, so as to be reminded of the fact that truth must impact the way that we live. Theology must ultimately be practical in our lives by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God empowering us to do that. So here are five unforgettable lessons to remember and apply as individuals and as a church from the book of Titus. Five unforgettable lessons for us to remember and apply. First of all, as we, saw, as we looked at the book of Titus this past year, we must remember the centrality of the gospel. We must remember the centrality of the gospel. You know, we're living in a day and age where the gospel is either assumed 
or it is watered down, or it is uh, reinvented or, or um, equated with other good and profitable causes, such as ending hunger and poverty, protecting the sanctity of human life, political fairness, social justice, you name it. Any or a combo of these very important issues can become our focus, and the gospel gets put on the back burner because we equate the gospel as being those things. And yet the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. And to be sure, the gospel has absolute implications for all of those worthy causes. And we should speak the truth of the word of God to all of those worthy causes. But those causes in and of themselves are not the gospel. We must remember that the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. And it has been central in this book of Titus. Back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul, speaking about his apostleship, says in verse 3 that he was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior with the proclamation. What is that proclamation? It is the preaching of the gospel message. Paul, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, was entrusted with the glorious gospel And right off the bat, as he opens up the letter in Titus, he says to Titus, Titus, this is what I am about. I am a proclaimer of the gospel. And obviously, by implication, Titus was to be a proclaimer of the gospel as well. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we saw how how the the, the grace of God has appeared in chapter 2, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men on the heels of the instructions given to the various groups as to how they need to live He says in 2.11, the reason why and the foundation for godly living is the gospel of grace that saves. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, we are told about how we ought to be living in this wicked world, this godless world. And then in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, yet again, Paul says, the foundation for that, for you fulfilling your responsibilities in society, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, is the gospel message. The kindness of God, chapter 3, verse 4. The kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind that has appeared. Based upon that, He saved us, in verse 5. Not on the basis of anything that we've done, but according to His mercy, His divine work in the human heart. And so over and over again in this book, Paul has emphasized to Titus, Titus, the gospel is central. And the gospel is a message, beloved, that we must be committed to and proclaim. The gospel has to do with, first of all, with God, our creator who is holy and just, to whom each and every one of us are accountable and answerable to. None of us sitting in this room and no human being born into this world is autonomous and should be living isolated as if they don't have to answer to anyone. Every single human being as a, as a creature of God is accountable to God. And yet each of us as individuals are sinners and have fallen short of God's standard and broken His law. We have committed mutiny against our Maker, and so what do we deserve because of our sin? We deserve God's just punishment for our sin and for our rebellion. And yet, because of God's great love, and His great mercy, and His grace, He has provided a sacrifice in His Son, Jesus, the perfect God-man, who perfectly fulfilled God's righteous standard in a life of obedience 
perfect obedience so that he alone was the one qualified to go to the cross as the blameless one and die a sinner's death though he was innocent on the cross of Calvary for sinners such as you and I. He took upon God's wrath. He absorbed God's wrath on behalf of sinners. And yet he rose from the dead victoriously on the third day and now lives to intercede for those who have given their lives to him. Amen? That's the beautiful news of Christ. Christ is the good news. In light of our desperate predicament, we must run to Christ. And this good news, this message requires a response. It requires a response from each and every one of us. And that response is repentance and faith. Repentance is a turning away from our sin, a brokenness of, for our sin and our life of self-worship and self-idolatry. To now turn to Christ by faith, abandoning self-trust, abandoning any reliance upon our own good works and putting our trust on the merits of Jesus Christ alone on the cross. That is a saving response. Faith is an abandonment of trust in ourselves, in our works, in our so-called inherent goodness. We don't have any inherent goodness. We are sinners who deserve God's punishment. We must trust, trust in Jesus alone and His merits on the cross to be saved. His merits alone. And so faith is a commitment to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives until He takes us home or He comes in His second coming, right? That is the gospel. And so what does this gospel, this good news centered on the person and work of Christ means? It means that that we must embrace this gospel for salvation. And there are some of you still sitting in here who have not done that, who have not committed your lives to Jesus Christ. where where, Where your soul hangs in the balance. Where you are living for yourself and not living for the purpose for which your Creator created you, which is for His glory. And the only way that you can do that, beloved friend, listen to me, is by trusting in Jesus alone. Only in Christ is there forgiveness. Only in Christ is there reconciliation with your Creator. Only in Christ can you be given eternal life. And so this gospel message means that we must embrace um, God's gift of grace to be saved. It also means that for those of us who are believers, we are to be compelled to tell others about God's gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ. We must be willing to tell people that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. That it's only by trusting in Christ that they can be forgiven and reconciled and given eternal life. How many of you sitting in here today When was the last time that you actually shared your faith with an unbeliever? Where you took the opportunity, even given the way that God has wired you, however He's wired you, to share the message of Christ, to talk to them about God, their Creator, and their desperate predicament as human beings, and the answer who is Christ, and call them to a verdict, their response of repentance and faith. When was the last time that you did that? Whether in your home or outside of your home. In your small mission field, your, ju- your work environment, or your neighborhood, or whatever context you find yourself, are you compelled by the grace of God shown toward you to share your faith with others? This gospel of grace 
is also as believers what we return to again and again for our sanctification. Beloved, listen to me. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is also for believers. We apply the gospel truth to our lives every single day. And may it never be that you as a Christian, you must never, ever, ever begin to live as a pattern of your life legalistically. As if somehow you are kept on good terms with God by the things that you do. As if somehow you add something to Christ's finished work. We cannot improve upon Jesus' atonement on the cross and we should not try to. His work is sufficient, isn't it? Sufficient. Our works are never the basis of our justification of our right standing before God. Only the finished work of Christ on the cross is. On the other hand, we must never cheapen the gospel. And the way that we cheapen the gospel of God's saving grace is by living ungodly, disobedient lives as the pattern of our walk, as if the gospel is some kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card with no implications for the way that you live on this earth. We must never cheapen the gospel that way. And someone who lives as a pattern of their life, an ongoing unrepentant sin, who has no thought to what God says in His Word about the way that they need to live, needs to examine themselves to see if you are truly in the faith or not. Because the gospel-transformed person will look different than he did or she did in the past, even if it's in baby steps. So this gospel message has implications for the way that we live. It is a transforming gospel so that we progressively become different than the world around us. Which leads me to my second um, important reminder from the book of Titus. We've been reminded in this book of Titus of the necessity for holiness. Not only the centrality of the gospel, but the necessity for holiness. We've been reminded that though we are in the world, beloved, we are not of the world. Adopting the world's thinking, adopting the world's living patterns, and even the world's way of coping with the evils of our society. We've been reminded that though we are called to love people who need Christ, we are not called to love the world system so as to become like it. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We must not love the world, though we will associate with the world. And back in chapter 2 and verse 1, if you notice, Paul instructed Titus in Titus 2 verse 1, But as for you, in contrast to the false teachers at the end of chapter 1, who are teaching unhealthy things that are leading to ungodliness in their lives and in the lives of others who hear them, but as for you... Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is, teach the people how to live godly in a way that is consistent with sound teaching, consistent with the gospel of God's saving grace. And then in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, he instructed about Christ-like holy character in the church, that they are to be holy. Why? Again, chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And that grace, Titus 2, 12, instructs us to deny ungodliness, that is to say no to sin and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's saving grace instructs us to say no to sin and to say yes to Christ and to Christ-likeness and holiness in our lives. 
Same thing in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. He instructs about Christ-like holy living in a lost world. And he says, why? Chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. He describes their old manner of life before Christ. But, chapter 3, verse 4. But, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. He saved us, not just from hell, but from destructive works that we would be set apart, beloved, holy, set apart from sin for Christ, in light of what He's done by His grace. And the message of Titus is clear. Our holiness, personally and as a church, is our most powerful, powerful witness on this earth, beloved. Listen, we don't win the world by becoming like the world. And by this I am not saying we are not to be engaging the world, living in the world, associating with the world. If we didn't want to do those things, we'd have to leave the world, right? And some Christians have that kind of perspective. They live that way. It's all about rigid, strict separation. They live sort of a monastic life, isolated from the world, never reaching out to anyone, never engaging anyone with the gospel, never influencing the non-believer for the sake of Christ. That is not the way that God has called us to live. We must recognize that we have been left here to influence and impact the world for Christ, to be salt in a tasteless world and, and, and light in a dark place. But how do we do that? We do that first by walking in holiness, by being like Jesus. Amen? By being like Christ. And also, Titus has taught us that we do this by being holy in the sense of also doing good works. Being zealous for good works. This begins in our homes. Living as Christ-like husbands and fathers. As Christ-like wives and mothers. As Christ-like grandparents. As Christ-like single people. And it extends onto the church. Practicing the one another's in the context of biblical relationships. That is how we, we do good works. We develop relationships with one another. And we serve one another. And then these good works are to, are to also be manifested to the world around us. In our society, we should seek to do good to our fellow mankind. Listen, every context that you find yourself outside of our corporate gathering in society is your little mission field. View it that way. Your job, your neighborhood, your home, whatever other context you find yourself in, that is your mission field, that you would be doing good to exalt Christ in that environment and, and have a, uh, an opportunity to share Christ with people. We are to be Christ in all of those contexts by doing good. But there's one thing that we've learned in Titus is that the gospel is put on display, beloved, through our diligence in good deeds. Elders in chapter 1 verse 8 are to be lovers of what is good and set the pattern in the church for being good doers. In contrast to the false teachers in chapter 1 verse 16 who are worthless guys for any good deed. Older men and older women, excuse me, in chapter 2 verse 3 are to be teaching what is good so that the young women may do good to their families. Titus in chapter 2 verse 7 is to be an example of good deeds so that the young men may be sensible and also be an example of good deeds as well. 
In chapter 2, verse 14, we are told that part and parcel of God's saving grace in our lives as Christians is that you and I would be zealous for good deeds. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Christians are to be ready for every good deed. In chapter 3, verse 8, Christians are to be careful to engage in good deeds. And he adds, these things are good and profitable for men. In chapter 3, verse 14, even as he concludes the letter, as we saw last week, he says that Christians must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. God wants you, believer, to be fruitful by doing good for His glory. Now, when he says in chapter 3, verse 14, as I mentioned last week, that, that we must learn to engage in good deeds, that gives me a lot of hope, doesn't it? It gives you hope as well as a believer. Because naturally, I am prone to be selfish and self-centered. But that verse tells me that I can learn to do good in my home, in the church, and out in society. Right? By the grace of God and by the power of God. Now listen, we don't do good works to be saved. Salvation only comes on the basis of Jesus' person and work. Right? We don't do good works as believers so that God will love us more. He already loves us perfectly in Christ, being clothed in the righteousness of His Son. We don't do good works for the purpose of looking spiritual to other people or to be man-pleasers. We do good deeds for God's glory because we love the Lord and for witness sake. We want to make much of Jesus on this earth. Amen? I don't know about you, but what the the primary thing that could be said about Kempis Hernandez prior to coming to know Jesus at the age of 17 is that whatever even morality I practiced, I didn't do it for the glory of God. I did it for myself. That changed when the Lord saved me. All of a sudden, though there are struggles there, and though, and though each and every believer has, has sins as well, and we will struggle, our ultimate motivation is to live our lives for the glory of God. Right? As believers. Beloved, we must be people, holy people who do good. And sometimes God allows us when we are obeying Him and doing good works and walking in holiness to see the wonderful fruit in the lives of people that we are kind to. I recall hearing the testimony of a Christian lady, a mother of six who was indifferent to the gospel along with her family and her very hostile husband. And the church in that community uh, the pastor and a couple of lay leaders ended up visiting this uh, lady uh, and her kids and her husband. And during the whole time there, they visited this uh, family with, uh, with, with food because they needed some physical sustenance. They were struggling. That was a very poverty-stricken area. And the pastor at one point said, Would you mind if I open up uh, the Bible and, and, and share with you a word? And he went off for about 10 or 15 minutes. The lady was very indifferent to the message that this pastor was sharing. The kids were all over the place, three of them kind of hostile as well. And from the corner of his eye, he could see in the next room that the husband was more hostile than anyone else. He even told his wife eventually, tell them to leave or I'm going to ask them to leave. There was hostility in that place. But would you believe as the Lord had it, would have it? Months later, it turned out that this guy had committed adultery. He had abandoned his wife in a poverty-stricken area. He was the only breadwinner. And he abandoned his wife and abandoned these six kids. And beloved, the only entity that she could think of, that she could go to run in the midst of her despair and hopelessness, was this church that had become a lighthouse in that community. 
And she went. Long story short, they ended up sharing the gospel with her again. She came to know the Lord. Three kids came to know the Lord. And the last that I heard of that family, they were plugged into that local church. See, sometimes God blesses us even by allowing us to see the fruit of our labors and our good works, right? Other times we just do it just to be faithful. Just to be faithful. You never know how God will use our holiness and even how we do good to others for His glory and to advance His cause. And so we must, we must be people who strive to be holy like Christ and out of the overflow of what He has done for us, be devoted to good works. And so thus far we've seen that we need to remember the centrality of the gospel message, the urgency for holiness or the necessity for holiness. Thirdly, we must remember the importance of godly, qualified, competent shepherds. We must remember the importance of godly, qualified, competent shepherds. As I've traveled over the years, as I mentioned during our series in the first chapter on leadership here in the book of Titus, I have seen, beloved, more than any other issue in the church, how sad it is that churches are not led well by godly, qualified, competent shepherds. That is the single greatest issue that I saw more prevalent in any other than any other issue in most of these churches that I visited. Churches must teach the Bible. Churches must preach a biblical gospel. Churches must promote biblical fellowship. But churches must be led by godly, qualified, competent men. According to chapter 1, verse 5, Titus was to help establish these churches. And note that at the top of that list, he was to help appoint elders in every city. Why? Because God's people need shepherds. But godly, qualified, competent shepherds. This is the overarching responsibility of elders, pastors, overseers, same office, to shepherd the flock of God. That is the responsibility of those who lead in the church. According to Titus chapter 1, they were to be men of Christ-like character. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Why were they to be men of Christ-like character? So that they could set the example for the flock. Likewise, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says to the elders, he says, elders are to, be, to prove to be examples to the flock. And so they are to be men of Christ-like character. They were also to be men of the book. Men who were competent with the Word of God in chapter 1 and verse 9 who were to be capable of feeding God's people and capable of protecting the church from false teachers and false teaching that was already infiltrating the church. How do you do that? You can't defend the truth if you don't know the truth. If you can't rightly divide the truth. And so these men must be men of Christ-like character and men of the book competent to handle the Word of God in order to protect God's people. It's so interesting that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is instructing Timothy, and after laying out the qualifications for elders and deacons, he says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy three fourteen, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. He says this on the heels of instructions to those who are to lead in the church. Why? Because elders are to be examples of holy lives, those who uphold the truth. 
If the church lifts high the truth of God here on this earth by her holy testimony, leaders, those who lead in the church are to be spearheading the efforts of, of, of holding the truth by the way that they live and the way that they defend the truth. He says, why, beloved, you need to be praying for your shepherds here at Calvary. And you need to be praying for shepherds in, in, in God's churches, true churches. Pray for us that we would be humble, broken men before the Lord. That we would always be teachable men, that we would abide in Christ. That we would spend much time at the feet of Jesus, learning from Him and drawing close to our Lord, so that then we would be driven to diligently and lovingly and gently shepherd you as the flock of God. You need to be praying for us. You need to be praying for for our future leaders in our church. You need to be praying that God would raise godly, qualified, gifted men who are competent to handle the word in this church so that this church continues to thrive into the future. Do you pray for that? Do you pray for godly leadership, competent leadership, qualified leadership in our church? Fourthly, we must remember the indispensability of discipleship. We must remember the indispensability of discipleship. That is the crucial importance of people, Christians, invested into one another, coming alongside of one another to follow Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, instructions given to the different groups in the church who would have comprised the, the church in those days. And these Christians were to be people of Christ-like character, Why? For God's glory, obviously. Also for silencing those who oppose God and His Word, to silence the opposition. But listen, they were also to be Christ-like for the purpose of being an example to one another, especially the older to the younger saints. Because example is the most powerful rhetoric, the the most powerful tool of persuasion, whether it be in the home or in the church. We all need examples, godly examples. And so that's what he calls for in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. You know what discipleship is? It's the application of the Word of God in real, life-on-life, blood, sweat, and tears, human relationships. That's what it is. The application of the word in real, life-on-life, blood, sweat, and tears, human relationships. And that's why we've talked so much about cultivating a culture of discipleship, a culture of disciple-making, so that investment into others is something that we strive to become a, a part of us as a church. The very air that we breathe. So that coming alongside of one another to help one another grow in Jesus and follow Jesus becomes the natural, normal pattern of our lives rather than something that you view as burdensome. That is going to take you away from the things that you really want to do in life. This is not any man's philosophy. Disciple making, as I've told you in the past, is Jesus' master plan for building his church, isn't it? Jesus' master plan. Jesus modeled it in his own life. What did he do? He poured his life into a few men in order to reach the masses. He invested himself. And he reproduced himself into others. 
That's how he began to build his church, beloved. And you know what? It is a beautiful thing to remember that as Christians, we have been invited into that disciple-making process and that Jesus requires us to make disciples as well in the same way. What do we do? We share the gospel with people. We evangelize people, telling them about Jesus and the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ so that they would come to know Jesus and be birthed in the faith. And then what do we do with them after that? We edify them or build them up in the faith. We help one another continue to follow Jesus by obeying Him and becoming more and more like Christ. And that is a lifetime process, right? All of this leads to exaltation, where all of us as a community of believers are worshiping Jesus together now and for eternity. This is the Great Commission. And if you are a believer, this is your mission. Your mission. This is not for the committed, radical Christian. This is normal, natural, basic, 101, Christianity 101. Disciple-making. True believers reproduce themselves. True believers share their faith. Certainly all of us will do it differently depending on how God has wired us, but true believers have a yearning and a desire to share their faith and to edify other believers by using their gifts, their spiritual gifts, their experiences, their God-given wisdom to edify and build up their brothers and sisters out of love for them and for the glory of Christ. True believers do that. That is our commitment. We'll struggle with that. We'll get selfish at times. We'll go through seasons of life. But then we will repent of that, of our selfishness, and we will confess it to the Lord, and we will ask Him for renewal in the gospel of grace that we would invest ourselves and reproduce ourselves into others. Evangelism, edification, investment, and reproducing ourselves into others. What does this involve? Disciple-making. Well, first of all, it involves cultivating relationships with others, right? Discipleship doesn't happen from a distance. We are not robots. We are not machines. We are human beings made in the image of God. So discipleship is personal. And discipleship is people life on life in one another's lives. Building and cultivating relationships. It involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. It requires us building relationships, but also sacrificing for others, joyfully giving of our time, joyfully giving of our resources, joyfully giving of our energy, sharing our very life with other people, whatever that looks like, informally or formally. It also involves a goal. It's goal-oriented. We spend time with people to help them and them helping us become more and more like Jesus Christ in a loving and gracious way. We are not calling people to follow us per se, but follow us to the extent that we are following Jesus ourselves, right? Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. It involves also using God's resources. Disciple-making is word-centered, That is the instrument that we use as we develop relationships and as we sacrifice for one another. And as our goal is to become more like Jesus, we cannot become like Jesus absent from speaking the truth of the word of God to one another in love, informally, informally. So we must speak the truth of the word of God to one another in dependence upon the Holy Spirit who does the work in the human heart. 
Investment into others is absolutely indispensable in the church, beloved. And so I ask you who are older, once again, who are you pouring your life into in application of what we've learned in Titus, of the indispensability of discipleship? Who are you investing yourself into? Who are you spending deliberate time with to speak the truth into their life? Whatever that looks like, giving your specific wiring over a cup of coffee, inviting them into your home, over a Bible study, over going through a book together of the Bible or a book that points you back to the Word of God. Whatever that looks like, discipleship is so fun because it's so broad and we can do it in so many different ways. All that it means is coming alongside of someone else to help them grow in Christ. So who are you investing yourself into, older saint? It is your responsibility to invest yourself into the next generation. This begins in the home, but also in the church. So you need to take initiative. You need to get involved in contexts where there are Christians, younger Christians, where they are involved. Men, you need to get involved in men's ministries. Not because of the event itself, but because of what the event can allow you to do be around other younger men. You need to show up. Just simply be there and be intentional as you reach out to other younger men and begin to speak the truth into their lives. Get involved in a small group. Every single one of you who are professed to know the Lord, every single one of you men should be involved in a men's small group in our church. Why? Because small groups are the thing. That's the spiritual thing. No. Because they are smaller contexts where other brothers are going to speak the truth into your life and vice versa. In an authentic, genuine kind of way. As you open up to one another about your struggles that you have. And you ladies, same thing. You need to put yourself in context where you're going to be around younger women. Some of you are totally absent from this. Others of you are very much applying this. I've been so grateful to see some of you older ladies involved in context in this church where you are investing in yourself into younger women. I thank the Lord for you. And yet there are others of you older women who are not investing yourself into younger women. Get involved in a women's Bible study. Ask a younger woman to meet with you. Invite her into your home. Show her the ropes of what it means to be a godly uh, wife and a mother. Show her the ropes of what it means to be a godly single woman. What about you who are younger? What about you who are younger? Who are you being discipled by? Who is speaking the truth into your life? Are you the lone ranger, proud and arrogant, thinking that, you know what, I'm good. I can make this happen on my own. Listen, you need to be humble and teachable. You need to be humble and teachable. And the way that that fleshes itself out is that you are a go-getter. And you seek out older saints investing into you, speaking the truth into your life. Be like the Proverbs say. You are one who searches for wisdom as for hidden treasure. You seek after it as gold, as fine pearls. Yes, from God's word is that wisdom first and foremost, but also from the lives of godly saints who have walked the, the ways that you have walked, who, are going through the, who have gone through the trials that you are going through in your marriage as a single person, as a father or a mother. 
Oh, that we would apply the truth of the word of God and realize the indispensability of the church, the people of God in the lives of one another. For your good, for your good, I challenge you in that area. Listen, you haven't arrived. You have a lot to learn. This is true for all of us, young, older, or old, single, or married. We must always be people who are learning, beloved. We are learners. And have a disposition to invite others into our lives, to speak into our lives. What are some unforgettable lessons from Titus? The centrality of the gospel the necessity for holiness, the importance of godly, qualified, competent shepherds, the indispensability of discipleship, and last but not least, the primacy of the church. The primacy of the church. We must remember that the church, not nonprofit organizations, Christian or non-Christian, not government agencies, nor any other institution on this earth, is primary or should trump the local church. In one sense, this book is all about the church. Titus has instructed, or Paul has instructed Titus to help establish these churches. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my social organization. I will build my nonprofit, Christian or non-Christian organization. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it or overcome it. And then following in Jesus' steps, his followers were committed to starting and strengthening local churches. Paul was a Christian man who planted churches and labored to strengthen and establish churches. This is missions, beloved, by the way. It's all about birthing, strengthening, establishing churches. Otherwise, it's not true mission work. It's about churches. It's about churches. This is what Paul trained Titus to do and left Titus to do in Crete to establish churches, to strengthen churches. Why was this so important? Because the church is God's vehicle on earth for advancing His purposes and promoting the gospel of His glorious Son, Jesus. The church, the church is the vehicle for advancing God's purposes on this earth. Nothing else more than the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul speaking about his ministry. In chapter 3, verse 10 of Ephesians, he says that God's manifold wisdom is being made known through the church to the authorities in the heavenly places, authorities and rulers in the heavenly places. Through the church, the glory of God, His manifold wisdom is being made known on earth through the church. That's a staggering statement, isn't it? The church is God's beautiful, glorious, living organism. We must love the church. The church is not a country club. The church is not a spa. The church is not a social service organization. The church is not a professional organization where you get all of your problems fixed and requires nothing of you. The church is not a physical building, though it is a spiritual structure, isn't it? The church are the people of God. 
The church is the people of God, people who have turned from their sins, who've submitted themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and who are present tense following Jesus Christ until the end, loving Him, obeying Him, serving Him, telling other people about Him, and reproducing themselves into other disciples. The church is the people of God. Christians who gather together for worship and the preaching and application of the word and biblical fellowship are the church. Christians who scatter to be on mission in the world are the church. If this church building, heaven forbid, would burn down, we would still be the church and we could meet down the street at a park and still worship Christ, beloved. But we never want that, of course, right? We love our building too. And most importantly, what is the ultimate purpose of the church? The church exists supremely for God's glory. For God's glory. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, the church, you, people of God, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Purpose statement. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are here to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has saved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Christians, believers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. It's glorious, isn't it? That having been outcast and aliens, we now, beloved, are part of God's family, God's household. We are the spiritual family of God and He is our Heavenly Father. You know what all of this means for you and I? Listen to me. That as a member of God's family now, I am to be absolutely committed and devoted to the local church if I claim to be a follower of Jesus. He to whom Jesus is connected, that person is also connected to other believers in a triangle kind of relationship with Jesus at the top, you on one side, and your other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the other. We are interconnected with one another. You cannot be committed to Jesus and not, as a pattern of your life, be connected to the local church. Do you understand that? The church is the body of Christ and He is the head and you are a member and others are members of the body with you. We are part of one living entity, one organism. We're interconnected to one another. And this means that my local church is my priority so that most of my time and energy and resources are invested into my local church and that is the way that God wants it. That's the way that he wants it. It is not necessarily wrong to be involved with nonprofit organizations or other organizations. Some people, the problem is, are more involved with nonprofit organizations, Christian or non Christian, social entities, or political organizations more than they are to their local church. And listen to me, I know the dangers of that. 
Because I worked with an organization for seven years, a nonprofit Christian organization focused on alleviating poverty and hunger. We delved into issues of social justice. And the battle of my heart constantly was not to allow that organization to become more primary than my local church. And it was a battle, even though it was a worthy cause and we should be involved doing those kinds of things. It must never be elevated, however. No issue, no entity above the local church. No organization should ever take away from the church or become more prominent in Christians' lives than the local church. Please hear me. The church is primary. The church is beloved of God. The church is beautiful. It's God's vehicle, God's agent on earth to advance the glory of His Son, Jesus. You say, but pastor, at the end of the day, aren't we all part of the quote-unquote universal church as long as we are Christians? Yes, amen, that's true. We are all Christians, true, or true Christians are part of what we might say the, call the universal church. Yes, However, let me remind you that the focus and the pattern of the New Testament is Christians being identified with and connected to a local church. Why? For shepherding accountability where there are leaders that are uh, keeping watch over your soul and for mutual accountability with other brothers and sisters who take ownership of you and you take ownership of them. Commitment to the local church is the pattern of the New Testament. That Christians would identify and connect to a local church. In fact, sometime you need to do a study on the word church in the New Testament. And what you're going to find is some 110 plus occurrences of the word church. And what you're going to find is that at least 90 of those occurrences are references to not the universal church, but to the local church, to the local church. We are part of a universal church, but that universal church is expressed in visible local communities, many bodies of believers. This is why we encourage you to become a member of a local church. Listen, if you don't become a member here, that's fine. That's fine. But make sure that you find a Bible teaching gospel-proclaiming, godly elder-led, fellowship and discipleship-promoting church and then become a member and commit to that local church. If Calvary is not the place, that's all good. It's all good, seriously. But you need for your spiritual health, and most importantly for the glory of Christ, who is the head of the church, you need to identify and connect with a local body of believers. Plug in. Connect. So the church is God's people, God's family, God's building, the guardian and protector of the truth. God loves His church. You know how much God loves His church? He loves His church so much that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, the church is described as the bride of the Lamb. <laughs> doesn't get any more beautiful than that metaphor, right? Especially for us husbands. You love your bride? I love my bride. That's how the church is described. He, she is the bride of the Lamb. And in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are told to love their wives just as Christ loves the church. And wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ as His beloved bride. You know why I love the church? Because my Lord Jesus loves the church. That's why I love the church. Not because she's perfect. 
Not because she doesn't have blemishes. Not because there isn't, it isn't messy sometimes. We're all a bunch of sinners saved by grace, right? But Jesus went to the cross for messy sinners, didn't he? So who are we to turn our backs on one another and not commit to a local church? These are unforgettable lessons for us, beloved. Unforgettable lessons, the centrality of the gospel, the necessity for holiness, the importance of godly shepherds, the indispensability of discipleship, and the primacy of the local church. I want to challenge you as we close. that even though we move on from this great letter, we don't move on from its great truths and the implications of those truths for our lives personally and collectively. Amen? We don't move on from those things. Let's be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, may we not be forgetful people who downplay your word, who ignore your word, who are not deliberate about applying your word. Oh, Lord, humble us. Help us to be teachable. Help us to be soft and tender to your truth that we might be people who glorify you as we apply your word and we are changed by the power of your spirit and that we might be a blessing to others, Father, as we invest into others and vice versa, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.